show starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Jay Love, and thank you for joining Turning a Moment into a Movement. I represent the Justice for Gerard movement. Gerard is my son who was um, wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't do. And because of that experience and journey with Gerard, I developed this um, platform um, called Turning a Moment into a Movement with myself and my friends. We come on every Friday at 6 p.m. to talk about wrongful convictions, um, injustice, and, um, and other things to educate our community, to um, help us um, bring awareness about wrongful convictions, especially. We hear more and more every day about exonerees and, and exonerations, and people are coming home after 20, 30, 40, 50 years in prison. And we want to eliminate that. So that's why we're here. So thank you for joining us. Um, the, if you want to know more about the, um, Gerard and his story, you can go to um, www.change.org slash justice for Gerard. Um, you can find more information about his story and as well sign the petition. And we also ask you to share, 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 share this platform with others. Um, the more we share and the more we have these conversations, the more we can help each other. So thank you for joining us. Now I want to bring on um, and introduce the panel for this week. And we're going to start with... Trisha, hi Trisha. <laughs> hey Jay, how are you this evening? I am so excited. Yeah, about right. this I was like, oh my goodness, I could, <laughs> you know what? I was like, let me pep myself up and get ready because <laughs> I am truly excited. I'm always excited to be amongst my my siblings, my brothers and my sisters. Uh, not excited to always talk about what we're talking about because we shouldn't have to talk about it, right? right. Um, but just grateful that we can come together and continue to spread awareness. And again, thank you so much for just the continuum of this platform and spreading awareness because really that's our only way out is to educate, to activate, and to organize, mobilize yes. the people. So, because when we organize, we win. We win. Yes. So, Trisha, <laughs> just tell if there, you know, this might be someone first time joining in. Let them know what it is that you do. Okay. So, my name is Trisha Duckworth. I am the executive director and founder of Survivor Speak and the League Consultant of Value Black Lives, and any and all things justice. Um, and and just, you know, really passionate about self-empowerment, you know, and us finding empowerment within ourselves, understanding that nobody's coming to save us. We got to save ourselves. Yes. And so with that, with other like minded people, we just continue to work. And so just grateful to be here. I'm so happy that you're here and I, that you're feeling a little better. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Trisha. Thank you. So next in the car 
<laughs> Revetia. Well, hello, everyone. How are you? I'm just so glad to be here today. And I'm grateful. I hope you can hear me okay. Grateful for the commitment um, that you have done, Janice and, and Trisha, uh, and really all the people who are on this platform are committed to change and change within. You know, I'm a minister over at Transforming Love Community. And wherever I go, my goal is to motivate, encourage, and empower people to access that power that they have within themselves to transform. Yes. I am the founder of um, the Choice Zone, which I just decided to come out and start saying, but I've been doing it secretly for about two years now, <laughs> where I help people transform their mind and their body. Uh, right now, this is critical. Mm -hmm. This conversation today is critical because we are no longer asking for change. We're, we're saying that change is happening. I've changed my, my conversation to say that it is happening right now. I don't say like it's going to happen because I think that we shall overcome that shall puts it out in the future and then it's not achievable. So now I'm saying, no, it has already come because the transformation occurs in our mind first. And then we don't ask for freedom. We don't ask for justice. We are saying it is, and we're realizing it, and we're becoming it, and we're demanding it, and we're, we're expecting that they will follow. Soon. Yes. Yes. Thank yes, you. I'm excited. So excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Ravintia. So next, we have a guest. Hi. Well, Taylor, really, you are not a guest. <laughs> so, hey. Yes, I've been here. here. <laughs> so introduce yourself, uh, Taylor. Tell everyone, just in case this is their first time joining us, tell them about everything that you do. Okay, well, like you say, I'm not a guest. Um, actually, a part of the family. Like, this is my original family and advocacy. Um, so I'm going to just get right into it. So I am a leadership coach for women. I've been coaching women um, to start their own businesses for about five years. Um, I just recently stepped into the space of advocacy in 2020 um, when I began to advocate for my husband, who's been wrongfully incarcerated uh, for 11 years. Right. So it took me 10 years before I actually stepped into that leadership position in my own life and began to advocate for my husband. Um, the reality of it is I just didn't know how to. I didn't know how to until I came across to Shay and Jay and they really began to take me um, by the hand and show me what advocating for your loved one really is. So ever since then, I have been. Um, I've been correlating what I do um, in my business with advocating and now helping and teaching uh, other women, wives and mothers how to uh, create campaigns and things like that for for their loved ones. Because like as Jay mentioned um, earlier in the show is there is a lot of people across the country who have been wrongfully incarcerated. Oftentimes we don't even hear about the stories until after they're exonerated. But the reality of it is it's almost a quarter million people across America who are um, innocent and they are in prison. So in hindsight, that's what I do. I'm happy to be on this platform with y'all again. Again, this is this is family. This is the original family. 
<laughs> yes. Yay. Well, thank you. And I'm glad you're here with us. Next. Hello. Hello. Much love. Much love. How are you? So, so attorney, attorney Hugo, Hugo Matt, Matt, introduce, introduce yourself. yourself. Well, first of all, can everybody hear me? Okay. I asked that question because I've been uh, besieged with uh, technology from time to time. And I know y'all laughing at me, but it's all good. It's all good. So, so here we are. Look, my name is Hugo J. Mack, uh, criminal defense attorney, born and bred, former candidate for Washtenaw County prosecuting attorney, because you definitely need a person with broader perspective in a prosecuting attorney's office. When I hear people talk about the wrongfully convicted and the overly convicted, you know, they're, they're another victim class to the overly convicted. Um, it touches my heart having a wrongful conviction incarceration experience myself and coming out to penitentiary and leaving many, many, many men behind, many men behind, you know, that are going through hell and paying a cost that they don't owe. And, you know, it touches my heart, you know, because in our military, we have a phrase, we don't leave nobody behind. We don't leave nobody behind. Well, I had to leave some people behind, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop fighting for them and for myself, you know. So uh, I want you to know that in terms of my practice, what I do, I've been proud of working for poor people. Uh, unfortunately, a majority of those being black people due to systemic racism. Proud to have stood for over 800 victims of domestic violence when there were no uh, 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 cause celebre groups uh, with privileged people deciding they're going to come in and do something this, today and then tomorrow it's saving the whales you know, uh, people that, that, that are committed to their own grandizement than, than a real cause. And, you, you know, you really don't know about poor, hurting, abused people unless you're with them, unless you go to where they are. You know, they're not a class of people that you can just look at on the TV or read a magazine about and then, like some women are privileged, unfortunately, anoint themselves to be the, the sole spokesman for, the, for those individuals. So, you know, I want you to know in terms of the Lord bringing me back, and I give credit to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for sparing me and bringing me back from hell for a reason. So, you know, I, I tell people all the time, when I go into court and I deal with systemic racism or prejudiced police officers, prejudiced uh, prosecutors, prejudiced judges, prejudiced juries, you know, I let them know the words of my late cousin, Bernie Mac. You know, I ain't scared of y'all. So <laughs> that's where we are, and I'm so glad to be with you uh, here and be a part of the family. Unfortunately, I have to go at 645, but I'm going to be here as long as I can, and Lord willing, we'll be here next week with you. Thank you, Attorney Hugo Matt. <laughs> uh, awesome. We're, I'm glad that you're here. I'm going to have to do the mute thing because we were getting feedback when you were on. But no worries, <laughs> no worries. So anyway, guys, I'm so glad that we're here. We're, we're um, first of all, this book, <laughs> this book right here. Um, I got the, someone on Facebook posted the book, and so um, immediately I ordered it. And I'm telling you, after reading the first chapter, uh, Police Behavior Matters, I was all in. So um, we had a conversation last week, and then I, um, before the conversation, I contacted the author of the book, and I want to bring him on. He's with us today. I'm so excited that he's here with us. 
welcome you guys, you guys to, to um, um, attorney, attorney David Robinson. Hello, attorney Robinson. attorney Robinson. Hello, Jay. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm uh, very, very happy and proud to uh, uh, to be here and uh, participate in this uh, very, very valuable process that you've begun. Thank you. Thank you. So, so tell us, tell us um, um, why did you why write, did this, you write book? this book? What is it that you do? Everything about you. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I have been around uh, police and police uh, mentality, let's say, for, uh, for most of my life. You know, I, I could say at 17 is when this process started, just after uh, uh, high school, getting out and uh, becoming a police cadet. I had a brother uh, who was a Detroit police officer five years before I had uh, become a, a police officer, but for two years I was a police cadet. And ever since then, hello? <laughs> Ever since then, uh, I uh, have been uh, around uh, uh, police and, and police mentality and police behavior and police misbehavior. Uh, I became a cop, did so for 13 years. Uh, during that process, I also became a lawyer. And uh, initially, I was on the side of the police, representing the police about three years, and I had switched over to the other side, uh, representing people that had been harmed uh, uh, at the hands of police. So for about 35 years, I've been doing that. And uh, having all of those experiences, both as a police officer and as a lawyer representing police, and as a lawyer representing victims of police misconduct, you know, it welled up inside of me that, uh, I needed to uh, express in the, in the form, you know, of some sort of book, uh, all of these things that I had been holding inside and, and, and experiencing. And uh, that, that was the momentum and the impetus behind uh, putting my thoughts down uh, in this book. Uh, you know, the intent is to, you know, illuminate uh, uh, not just the public, but uh, police officers themselves and police departments and chiefs of police who uh, all think uh, against um, everybody else but themselves. And um, uh, that paradigm is my hope and intent of the book and, you know, speaking on the subject matter to shift the paradigm so that police began to look at themselves and see themselves uh, in a light that uh, will hopefully cause them to be more compassionate in the manner in which they engage people, to be uh, uh, cautiously um, protective um, and uh, respecting people in the process of the job that they have to do. And that, you know, after all, we're taxpayers. <laughs> we pay them uh, to, uh, honor the oath that they take. Uh, and we expect and hope that they will, you know, uh, change. And there is time 
it is overtime for a paradigm shift. I agree with the paradigm shift. It is, um, <laughs> this is, the time is now for the paradigm shift. When we're, um, when we're listening to the, um, especially with the narrative of there's a few bad apples, you know, that they try, every time you hear something wrong, there's a few bad apples, there's a few bad apples. But the apples is, um, the tree <laughs> is overloaded with apples. Um, I mean, just recently we hear about, you know, 83 complaints, 93 complaints. Uh, last year or the year before, uh, Detroit, um, Detroit News wrote an article about 70, over 70 uh, police officers that lie so much that they can't testify in court. So when you hear all of these um, um, things, and like you said, we do pay that, we pay, we've been paying for this. <laughs> what, I mean, this book is like necessary to change the culture, to get us um, all as citizens alerted about um, the culture of policing and to kind of allow us to let go of that narrative. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, one thing, uh, Jay, when the uh, discussion always comes up when the news reports bad conduct by a police officer, the knee-jerk or sort of reflective response is that, oh, but, you know, there are other good police officers. So it's as if um, people are so influenced by this police thing that they feel the urge to apologize <laughs> for that one bad apple. Now, the interesting point is, and, and that's why I talk about I mean, the whole idea of the book is to look at, at police officers, not as heroes, uh, but to look at them as human beings. And they are just as flawed <laughs> as the people that they interact with. And so if you put it on that level, um, then you have to understand that, you know, uh, if you take any bad police officer, um, the day before he became a bad police officer or the week before he became dubbed the bad police officer, he saved a kid from drowning or got a cat out of a tree or, you know, stopped a robbery. And so that same police officer a week later, who's dubbed a bad police officer, if you heard about his story the week before, you would have included him in that group of good police officers. So the dichotomy about good, bad police officers is to me is kind of useless. And again, it plays into the, you know, this uh, influence that uh, police wield over um, everybody. Uh, and, and it's if you have to apologize for the behavior of one bad police officer. You know, um, so don't call them good or bad. <laughs> Just call them police because every good police officer can be a bad police officer, you know, at a moment's notice. That's the whole point. Exactly. I know I, I read about um, in the book, you talk about the cop as a hero syndrome. 
and that uh, the case, one of the cases that you were talking about that, it was really um, enlightening how you put that together as them um, seeing themselves as, as heroes, but how seeing themselves as a hero, how things can just all fall apart from that. Yeah, it's, it's uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, um, if a police officer, you know, uh, puts on a uniform and somehow thinks that it's like a, turns him into a cape crusader, <laughs> you know, that can lead to bad things happening. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of police officers find themselves, you know, in that position, you know, when I was a cop, it was kind of funny because citizens, um, have the highest expectation, you know, of a police officer, and they're willing to open their door, uh, open their homes, open their heart to police officers. But that same attention feeds on the ego of an unchecked police officer, or let's say the unchecked ego of a police officer, who again uh, looks at that deference um, and misinterprets it uh because he's not a hero he's a human being and uh as i say as flawed as anybody else so um it's better to keep i'll say the ego and the hero in check so that you don't you know run afoul of uh of your own uh limitations as it were you know exactly i'm going to open up the um Trisha, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, so interesting. I, I want to share a little bit about what I put in the chat um, about the, the, the good officer, the bad officer syndrome. You know, we were out at a protest and uh, this elderly man said he wants the mic and he came to the mic. We were protesting a police officer. He came to the mic and he said, my granddaddy told me a story about an apple tree. He said, I want you to know that if the apple is bad, then that means the tree is rotten. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how I equate that is to look at how I study policing, its inception, what it was really meant to do, then what it went to, and the fact that it's still on track, right, to be what it was initially set out to be. Um, how do we how do we reform something like that? How do we fix something like that? Um, because from what it looks like, it's a mindset, right? Um, with with police officers, and it's not just one agency, it's across this country. It's we see it over and over again, like you said, that unchecked ego, like that level of superiority, um, as opposed to being what they're they're called servants you know where are the servants we want to see the servants we haven't seen this i i haven't seen the servants well let me take that back they serve where they want and when they want it's like it's interchangeable it's you know but you can't be on this on that end and then turn around like even down in washington county the sheriff bless his heart he wants to have outreach programs 
but your officers cannot go through the county terrorizing black citizens. And then you turn around and bring those same officers back in the community to be working and trying to uplift and, and to build. It just doesn't work like that because people will not take to that because of what they are used to seeing police officers as. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things that I point out in the book, um, I talk about authority versus power. And, um, you know, one man does not have dominion over another man, particularly police officers, but they misinterpret their authority for dominion. And that's large, in large part where the problem comes in the state gives the police officer the authority to enforce the law. The state cannot give a police officer power. That's impossible. But all too often, police officers forget about, you know, the limitations that are placed on them in the form of, you know, the Constitution, in the form of the Bill of Rights, in the form of their code of ethics and in the form of their oaths that each police officer when he becomes a police officer is required to know, to memorize, all right? But after the academy, after the graduation, as significant as that code is, and those are the marching orders that, you know, the constitution gives, that goes out of the door. They never have to learn that or review it rather ever again, you know, and again, um, how do you change that? It would have to start not from you. <laughs> it has to start from their own house. Uh, when you talk about apples uh, and bad trees, <laughs> you know, that officer or the sergeant, Stephen coup that um, had the 83 citizen complaints. Um, again, that should not happen. And it is indicative of uh, the example that that statement uh, portends. Because coup, if there weren't um, diseases within the ranks of his supervision going all the way up to the chief of police, he wouldn't have been able to get away with that. And so when Ross Jones, you know, breaks the news, um, you know, it was kind of interesting to me <laughs> that it's like it is a, uh, what is a tacit admission when the police department members who are interviewed said, oh gosh, we didn't know that. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. That's nonsense. You're not doing your job. You know, the system has to be designed so that coup cannot get away with, you know, calling people the N-word and just dogging them out like he did. I've sued that boy three times, okay, <laughs> for some of the same conduct. So that isn't an accident. You know, he got away with it because somebody was asleep at the switch, okay? And that includes the chief of police, all right? 
Yes, um, uh, I saw that. And then once they um, brought Stephen Cool out, then you see a whole slew of them now are coming out. One has over more than Stephen Cool, and then um, then you have police officers that's riding around in stolen cars. And so when you say be police behavior matters, these things matter because that creates the um, the frequency or the environment of the people that they come around, you know, and so if they are corrupt, if they lie, if they, you know, have all this negative energy about them, then what are they projecting onto others? And so um, when I was reading about um, one of the stories you were talking about, um, Lamar Grambo, and that story, it, I mean, I just, you know, with the mother, I felt, you know, um, as she was describing how she wouldn't, she was relentless, you know, to prove her, you know, that her son's innocence and what really happened, the story behind what really happened with her son. And that was another example of what you were talking about, the uh, um, the probable or uh, probably probable cause or probably uh, cause. Cause, <laughs> right. right. So could you go on that, so a, little bit? Go on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, um, Lamar Grable, 20-year-old young man, his father uh, was a police officer. <laughs> um, his mom, uh, Arnetta Grable, was one of the strongest persons, most fierce mother that I've uh, ever had the pleasure to uh, to meet. And, and it's kind of interesting because um, that experience that I had with uh, Arnetta, and she's deceased now, unfortunately, but uh, I, you know, always respected, you know, mothers, um, of course, but the bond between a mother and her son and their children is stronger than any bond that uh, exists on the planet. And I saw it because she was relentless in her pursuit for justice for her son. She just knew that the boy that she had raised could not have been the type of person that uh, the police officer, Eugene uh, Brown, um, had uh, uh, alleged that he was. And, you know, again, um, the hero versus uh, the human there's a story unfolded and with this police officer, Eugene Brown, uh, the public never really heard about his history. I mean, in six years, he had shot his gun nine times and um, killed three people in the course of that. So that's back to uh, someone is asleep at the switch because, you know, that statistic in and of itself um, you know, never made it to the radar. And literally to this day, it still hasn't made it to the radar. But, you know, um, uh, the fact that uh, he was never um, uh, uh, rounded up, so to speak, and he was allowed to continue doing what he was doing uh, clearly was the fault of a, an administration that let him get away with it. And so uh, his his hero, I dubbed him as a hot dog, you know, because he was like the lone wolf going after uh, someone who he said uh, had a gun. Didn't threaten him with the gun, just had a gun, okay? And 
to go off into the dark through the woods to chase after someone who he had lost sight of, you know, led to uh, what a tragedy for uh, someone like Lamar Grable, who innocently uh, was coming home from a pale police athletic league sponsored event at a church. And mind you, everybody that went into that church had been searched and had to go through a metal detector. So, um, you know, as fate would have it, unfortunately, the two met and um, Brown shot Lamar Grable eight times. And, you know, the, 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 the screwed up thing about it was that, you know, you had a police department uh, board of review, and that was uh, uh, supposed to have been comprised of executive officers of the, of the police department who would have had the detective uh, uh, and investigative experience to get to the truth, to the bottom line. So they never did. You know, I come later, years later, get the file, and I am able to get to the truth. And, you know, um, that certainly should, Lamar Grabo was executed. You know, there were contact shots, you know, that just bespoke uh, his execution. And all of that evidence, you know, was ignored. It's been ignored seriously to this day because Eugene Brown has never been caught on the carpet for that, you know. And, um, um, you know, again, that officer should have been the poster child for police departments all across America to uh, analyze and synthesize and to steal how it is you shouldn't do <laughs> what he did in order to save the lives of innocent people caught up by the ego and this hero nonsense of police officers. But to this day, uh, this police department has not even considered you know, uh, analyzing that behavior. And so it is sort of like promoted. Eugene Brown was never, ever disciplined for what had happened uh, to Lamar Grable, and it was called a justified shooting. Notwithstanding the fact that one of the bullets, you had five contact shots, okay? And, and a contact shot, mind you, is when the barrel of the gun is put it next to the skin such that when it fires, there is a circle uh, on the skin, an imprint of the, the actual barrel of the gun. And mind you, uh, forensically, that cannot occur <laughs> um, uh, accidentally because it takes time to put a barrel of a gun next to somebody's skin. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then one of the shots, and you have to justify each and every bullet that comes out of the gun. One of the shots was to the back of his arm. It was a contact shot and it was back to front. So, I mean, again, this was execution style, you know, and he was held a hero, all right? Because he supposedly got shot at by Lamar Grable. No fingerprints of Lamar on the gun that was found. Officers do plant guns, mind you, okay? Because they need a backup plan when they know they done wrong, so.
I mean, that, 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 that's the mentality. <laughs> I mean, this is like some TV stuff, but it's real life. You know, is it art imitating life or life imitating art? You know. Oh, wow. I want to give um, Attorney Hugo Mack, I was looking at the time, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to say, say something, something before, before you, leave. you leave. Well, first of all, I hope there's not feedback. Is there still feedback? Go ahead, Tony. All right. I'm sorry if there is. Um, hearing this gentleman talk really brings a lot of thought to my mind because the things that he is talking about are things my entire criminal defense career that I've been fighting. You know, they just had an election in Virginia the other day. And the man that got elected in his victory speech said, you know, we're not going to do nothing about qualified immunity. You know, in other words, we're going to keep that protection for rogue police officers, you see. And the problem that we have is, you know, I grew up in a scouting environment, you know, uh, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. For me, I thrived in a chain of command, in responsibility and delegating authority and promoting through the ranks. But you know, I had to fight myself going through the ranks, the higher that I climbed to be sure I was not judgmental looking down on the people that were my subordinates. Now, if a paramilitary organization like the Boy Scouts, and that's exactly what they are, a paramilitary organization with patrols and ranks and authorization, if a person can be tempted with that kind of mentality in a situation like that, think how tempting it is when you put a gun on somebody's hip. Okay, think about that. And the kind of God complex that can give somebody. And we allow men and women to do that. So I respect what the brother said. I agree with him 100%. But I also want to say this. A lot of us may consider ourselves progressives or liberals or, or you know, activists. But all unions are not good. <laughs> okay? So when you have a union that is going to back up rogue police officers, that union is not good. You know, I remember a black man, I can't remember the gentleman's name, he was uh, the district attorney, in, in, I believe, in Fulton County, Georgia, and was bringing charges against those police officers. I think they had shot a man that was in a McDonald's or uh, he was sleeping in his car at a, at, 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 at a drive through restaurant anyway, ended up shooting that man. And the police union put tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in supporting a person running against him for district attorney in Fulton County. You see what I'm saying? Because he had the audacity to call out one of theirs. So we will never get to where we want to go until we demand, and some people may cost in their lives it has, that these police officers be held account. And we got to have, stop having these punk, weak attorneys, criminal defense attorneys, so willing to go into court and please somebody out rather than making these police officers do their job. You know, so there we go.
Thank you, Attorney Hugo Matt. <laughs> You're yeah, right. You know, I wanted to um, chime in because, um, the, you know, it's just heartfelt hearing each time I hear a story. It 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 touches me each time, and the 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 it's. You know, and then you hear people say, they'll say, but I'm not a monster. No, you are. You are a monster. That's a monster. That action is monstrous. Okay? So that makes you a monster. Okay? Now, you may need something psychologically done. I don't know. But the act itself, that's a monster act. And, you know, the what people need to know, and, and this is why I love this platform, it's because we can educate. There's no excuse for the behavior of ill police. There's no excuse. They did a study on, on uh, implicit bias training with police. They trained police. And the study is, does training with implicit bias, does it work? And guess what, y'all? The answer was, in layman's terms, no, it didn't work. All of the training in the world, because it's a consciousness, it's a mindset. So we can no longer make excuses about how we can go in and add to and take away in a system that is already broken. We need to tear it down. That's what I want. All right, Taylor. Yes. Um, first of all, I just want to acknowledge um, Mr. Robinson for writing the book because um, for an individual to come up in the culture of police and be brave enough to step out and be able to speak up because you don't see too many people um, bold enough to do that. Um, you see a lot of people who will acknowledge the flaws, but they'll never actually speak out um, in opposition of it. So uh, just you being willing to write this book, and I have not been able to read it. I actually just discovered it a few days ago, but I did order it. I'm in Ohio. So as soon as I get the book, I'm going to be passing it all around um, because just from the, the different chapters and the things that you guys are talking about um, here, I know it's a lot of value in that book um, for people like me in the community to be able to tap in. So I just want to acknowledge and thank you for writing the book, first off. Um, and some of the things that you mentioned as far as the, the hero syndrome, um, I think well, I'm going to try to kind of tie in everything that I've heard everybody say so far, um, because when we talk about things like the hero syndrome and mentalities, um, I think it's important that we realize that we realize that we all have some form of implicit bias. You know, everybody walking this earth, we're all, we're all human. And I really think that that is um, what I'm taking from the book. And I mean, that's just facts that, you know, um, police officers, they're human beings. And when we give them this title of hero, it gives them some sort of uh, super natural belief in themselves. Um, and as attorney Hugo Max said, anybody is subject to, to you know, um, 
feeling that, you know what I'm saying? Like absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when you give people, you put people in a position and you program them to think that they have um, immunity, that they can get away with anything and everything and nothing's gonna come, no, no consequences are gonna be brought up. It does create a, an ongoing mentality of corruption that does not mean, and I'm gonna speak probably um, in opposition to it, a lot of people, um, may believe on our side of the fence, but I do not believe that all police are bad. I do not believe that even police officers who make horrible decisions are bad. I believe that they are people who make bad decisions. The system, the criminal legal system itself is corrupt. And because it's corrupt, it does create and it does cover up um, actions of people when they make those poor decisions. But everybody in any type of work field industry can say that they've cut corners at some point in time. It doesn't necessarily make them a bad person, right? They, you know, they do bad things, but there's no accountability for these police officers. So I really want to know from you is how do we begin to like uncover the deep-rooted issues within the legal system that's holding these police officers accountable? Right. So I know qualified immunity is a big issue um, in Detroit and Ohio and across the country. I'm actually sparking up a campaign in Ohio for uh, to end absolute immunity so that we can also hold the prosecutors and judges accountable for these wrongful convictions. Basically, everybody needs to be held accountable. The same way you're going to hold a doctor accountable for uh, malpractice, you should hold the prosecutor and police accountable for decisions they make throughout the course of their duty. So uh, what what actually needs to be done for us to really start to uncover and undo this deep rooted um, corruption that's in the system? You know, it, it, it's uh, it's uh, a task. Um, the only thing that we have at uh, our disposal and I want to qualify this, you know, is the power to vote. Um, you know, and for the first time, I'm going to say in the history of our, at least my existence on the planet, uh, with the despicable death of uh, George Floyd at the hands of that uh, monstrous police officer, Derek Chauvin, was an opportunity. Okay. Um, we saw uh a world upset we saw people power we saw um police chiefs you know getting down on their knees you know and um we saw police testifying against police in order to convict uh derek chauvin um but unfortunately, that momentum, okay, has faded away. As uh, Attorney uh, Mac just indicated, um, the whole concept of uh, qualified immunity uh, will never ever <laughs> go anywhere without congressional uh, edict our Supreme Court, and, and we are in the throes, trust me, of like a Dr. Evil episode <laughs> with what's going on politically. Um, you know, it's maddening, it really is. 
But the only thing at our disposal, again, you know, is the power to vote and the power to continue the advocacy, you know, that you are, are doing. Okay. And, the you know, let's face it. I'm suing them and I've been doing this for 35 years and I'll be doing it for another 35 years if the good Lord allows me to do it because right is right and wrong is wrong, okay? And change has to come about. It is only gonna come about through the inside of police being able to introspectively examine themselves and it starts with chiefs of police. So. Um, you know, communities, you know, uh, advocate um, for change, advocate for paradigm shifts locally, you know, force those issues at community meetings and raise the points, you know, that, that I think that I have been blessed to raise given my experience in this book, the notions that I'm talking about. The, the distinction between power and authority and how it is that police never want to ask themselves the question of what could I have done differently to have avoided the death of so-and-so? What could I have done? You know, and quit looking to, you know, every John doing, Jane doing, say that, well, they shouldn't have done this or they should have not resisted. Okay, what should the police have done? Because remember, they get there before you know, the whole thing, you know, started. But in every um, um, story that we hear on the news, it always starts with the police narrative. It starts at the point that he arrives at the scene when he should have been thinking about that. And, the, and the, the training should be to start thinking about a way before you get to the scene, before that hero complex comes out. If you could go down the list of Tamara Rice and Eric Gardner and Michael Brown and uh, Walter Scott, every one of those things, if the police had have gotten into well before they got to the scene, you know, an understanding of let me check my own behavior instead of rushing into to danger like that. And a little boy, 12 years old, shot 20 seconds within that cop getting there to the scene. There was absolutely no excuse for that. And yet he gets away with it. Eric Gardner, you know, it was so stupid. You know, I mean, he, he's selling loose cigarettes. You know, you got to please analyze and think before you act, but please aren't trained to do that. They just act and then they want to make an excuse after they've done something stupid, you know, and lie about it. And as uh, again, Brother Mac says, rely on the union to come up with, you know, uh, one of those ready-made, pull it out of your best excuses. So, you know, continue your advocacy and 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 again pound the on the desk of the chief of police pound on the desk of the of the mayor and cause them to uh cause the their appointees to look introspectively in how it is they police the community again i point out things i believe in that book that nobody else you know on the planet seems to want to talk about because nobody else wants to take on the police I, you know I know them, 
I've done it inside and out, you know, and the things that I am, am putting out there, you know, they're the truth. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Shift the paradigm. Shift it. I um, liked um, when you were talking about the narrative. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to um, um, Charlie Duff's podcast, and he had on the media person who used to work for Chief Craig. And he was discussing uh, about how they, um, that's what they do. They put their narrative out and feed it to the media. And he basically was saying, and he admitted it, that the media, the local media is lazy. And so with them, some of them, we're not going to say all of them, but a, a, a lot of them are lazy. And so, and, and um, instead of them doing their work, finding out more details or whatever, they just go with these narratives. And so as they go with these narratives, this is what program us to believe a certain narrative. And so we have to have media as well that's not biased and that will do their job and not just go with the, with the, 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 narrative. the narrative. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's like the, the, uh, the major uh, media, both, you know, paper and uh, electronic, um, uh, can be political. And um, they have editors, and the editors again can be political. I remember when I was uh, uh, a police cadet, and I worked uh, down at police headquarters. I was 17, 18 years old, 17. And uh, back in those days, this was back in the early 70s or mid 70s. Um, there was this teletype machine, and um, it literally. For the tri-county area of Macomb, Oakland, and Wayne County, all the crimes that were you know, happening, you know, it wasn't real time, but you know, it was reported to the Detroit Police Department um, of the crimes that were happening in these suburban communities, and these were crimes like you know, babies being raped, you know, crimes of you know, moral turpitude. And, you know, I would get off and go home, look at the 11 o'clock news. And the only crimes that were reported on the news were the crimes that were happening in Detroit. Yet, I was reading all these despicable, you know, morally corrupt crimes and depraved crimes that were happening in the suburbs. So, you know, the editors are the ones that are picking and choosing which stories, you know, to report because they don't want their neighborhoods, you know, about uh, property values going down. So they're going to talk about stuff in Detroit, but that goes to, so, so, so that goes to the very point that you're, that you're just making, you know? So um, I want to um, go over to the, uh, you, Eddie, Lo um, Joy, Joe Lloyd case. Um, a, that was a wrongful conviction case. And that's the reason why we're here um, every Friday is about wrongful convictions. Um, through uh, my journey with the wrongful conviction of my son, I have met so many other 
mothers and loved ones and family members, and even Taylor herself, who have a, a loved one that's incarcerated for a wrongful conviction. And um, could we go over that story just a little bit? Sure. Uh, Eddie Joe Lloyd uh, was wrongfully imprisoned, uh, convicted of uh, raping a murder of a 14-year-old girl uh, that he never, ever committed. Now, um, Eddie Joe Lloyd was in Herman Keeper in the psychiatric ward um, and had heard on the news about this uh, murder of uh, Michelle Jock Jansen, Jackson or Johnson, I forget her last name. But it was at a time where um, they called it the schoolgirl rapes. And there had been a series of rapes and murders of young girls going to school. And the mayor, Coleman Young at that time, you know, was under a lot of pressure, you know, to catch uh, whoever was responsible for it. So um, the detectives, uh, and I knew <laughs> the detectives personally, um, uh, one uh, in particular, uh, based on Eddie Joe Lloyd, he called from the mental uh, facility at Herman Kiefer to say that he uh, had information about, you know, who committed the crime. And so uh, Thomas DeGallon is his name. We sued him, um, went over there and took uh, four different state, four statements from Eddie Joe Lloyd. And in the course of this process of talking to Eddie Lo Joe Lloyd, he was feeding Eddie uh, information that had, had never been made public. And it was, and he had uh, inscribed uh, the information that he was feeding Eddie into the form of a confession, putting it on Eddie, uh, then going to the prosecutor and get a warrant for his arrest saying that Eddie confessed to the murder. Uh, Eddie never uh, ever uh, uh, knew, could have not known these particular details. And so the, 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 this, again, you know, the, the the, the 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 human nature of that police officer, you know, I don't care how much pressure would have been put on him uh, to catch the, the person responsible for Michelle's death, but to put the imposition of a life sentence um, on a man based on, again, on your ego, okay, is one of the most despicable things in the world. And, you know, again, as a police officer, I saw it all the time where cops would lie uh, on somebody that they know didn't commit a crime, you know? And, and, and you know, uh, that's what happened to Eddie Joe Lloyd. Fortunately, uh, we were able to uh, get justice for him. Now, the sad thing about it, you know, these men that, and women that are uh, sent to jail innocently, um, uh, their health and their um, um, uh, mental and emotional well-being, you know, sort of succumbs. And a lot of them, and we've seen this, 
uh, their life expectancies are shortened. Uh, Eddie Joe Lloyd was only out, you know, for a couple of years and actually he died before uh, we were able to resolve his case. Um, but his daughters, of course, uh, were um, able to uh, receive um, uh, the award that Eddie would have wanted them to have anyway. But, you know, a, a wrongful conviction is one of the most horrible things uh, that any police officer can impose upon another person. You know, to shoot a to shoot a person, you know, uh, and their life is ended is, is a tragedy for sure. But for a person and, you know, I've been in those prisons, <laughs> it is a horrible, horrible, you know, uh, state. But once you're behind bars, I mean, you are treated very, very differently uh, than if you're out on the street, you know, so. Yes, uh, I know for my son, he, um, he already suffered from severe Crohn's disease. So going inside with that kind of um, illness where he needed infusions and then ended up getting COVID, it was just uh, a really traumatic experience. And so when the more you hear these stories about um, people coming out and a lot of them having common these jailhouse snitches, um, you just wonder, you know, this is beyond a few bad Apple thing. You know, most of the designeries that have been released lately, all of them have these jailhouse snitch um, things in common. And so when you have these um, things going on, you're like, where is the, where is the training? <laughs> where who who made this OK with people, you know, just to put these things in place? For other people to go to prison for life. For life. Right. So again, you know, I, I want to just go over and reemphasize the fact that you know these are human beings, and 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 you know we know it, we see it. Human beings could be the most evil people on the planet. You know, we can treat each other worse than the one dog treats another dog. You know, and that whole uh, concept is lost with police. It's lost with police departments. The personality of a police, you know, we don't want to look at that side of ourselves. All right. We want to put more bulletproof vests on. We want to buy stronger, faster bullets. Okay, because we want at all costs to protect ourselves. When a more common sense approach of treating peaceful people decently, you know, is is it could be as protective as a bulletproof vest. One of my partners used to tell me, you know, treat these citizens with respect because you never know when they you might need them. And you might need them. And the, the very guy that, you know, is the worst crook in the world, if you treat him with respect when some guy, body, some dude crook's got a gun in your head, could be the very one that can save your life. And that's how I operated on the street. You know what I mean? That gun 
so what? <laughs> you know, uh, common decency, I'm telling you, it goes a long way. It really does. And, and that's the, um, what you discuss in there, the human factor um, that the cops deny, you know, um, the way you treat other people. Um, and that's, that's just, you know, how I was raised. You treat the others how you want to be treated. You know, and so and and I guess once you get the gun, once you get the uniform, that goes all out the window, and then the hero or the superhero guy evolves. Right, right. Yeah, there, there, there is pressure, and then there again is nothing within the the police department that um, makes you see it another way, um, and and fortunately, fortunately. Uh, there are police officers that think the way that I thought and think the way that I think today. And those are the police officers whose stories don't make it <laughs> to the news because they know how to treat another person. All right. With respect. I mean, they have empathy and certainly sympathy and empathy and sympathy. I guarantee you it saves police officers lives. That's the whole point, you know, of what I'm saying. It does, you know. Reverend Tia. Now, please. Yes, you know what? While he was talking, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Taylor. And, and, and I thank you for writing the book and the courage to do that. Um, and it's showing that the extent to which a person goes through in order to be right. And I believe that changing the narrative on having to be right is, is something that we need to really think about today. And um, because these, the police officers, they're not, you know, they come in many uh, different shapes and sizes and colors. <laughs> so, you know, you can't say that they all are a particular um, type of person. However, I do believe that it is a united mind in behavior. And their behavior is wrong. And I like how you said it's just wrong. And that's why I'm out here. Um, and it's time for us to really look at, let's just get to right. Let's get on the other side of right. And changing the narratives definitely will get there. And changing the narratives from within us. And that's why I'm glad that you have this platform, because we have to change the narrative within us that says that we're guilty already. There's so many African-American people of color who already wake up in the morning believing that they're guilty, believing how many children, they've done studies about children who believe, males, that I'm not going to live long because of who I am. They expect to have encounters with the police. And, and if you're listening, my, I plead to parents to begin to change those narratives with your children. They don't, it doesn't have to be their story. 
That doesn't mean that we discount the stories that have happened or we turn away or we don't get in and speak up for people who are part of the underserved. But we must continue to do this and to speak. And so I just want to say thank you um, for doing this. Thank you for your being this. And thank you for empowering people towards change. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, I thank uh, you very courageous women uh, for standing up and doing what it is that you're doing. It takes a woman. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> I actually back on what Reverend Tia said. Um, we want to thank you and honor you for your courage to write this book. Um, I am looking forward to sharing it with everyone here within my community and really begin to change the narratives of police officers and ourselves. I think what I heard you say a lot is that we also have to look at ourselves to change those paradigms um, because the culture that we live in did not create itself. We did play a role in perpetuating these narratives. Um, but Reverend Tia said something that really spoke to me uh, as we're raising our children, especially young black men. I have an 11 year old son, he'll be 12 next month. And I got a chocolate baby. He is chocolate, right? And he is big, he's a football player. And, you know, I am all about affirmation and speaking power and life into them. Um, however, I am also a formerly incarcerated woman. My husband is wrongfully incarcerated. Uh, statistically, I don't even have to finish the sentence. Despite everything that I'm giving him and speaking into him, but I'll tell you, I mean, every single day I tell him how brilliant he is because he truly is. Um, but I sent him to the store one time and he FaceTimed me. And again, I got a I got a big, big black baby, right? And he has on this black hoodie and he FaceTimes me. And all I see is him looking at me with this hoodie over him. My response, my knee-jerk reaction was take that hoodie off. The trauma that has been placed because of the history that we have gone through, we have to acknowledge it. I hear so many different stories, but we have to let go of what happened so that we can move forward. But it's very difficult to forget about what happened and to be completely blind to the reality of, of corruption and inhumane behavior of human beings that's within these systems. Um, so I think it is important that as we do work to change the narrative, we also you we also work to continue to educate people on the history so that we understand where these narratives come, where these narratives um, come from within ourselves as black people and also within uh, the legal system, the, 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 the police, um, the courthouses. You know, I've been speaking with lots of judges over the past uh, few months. And what I have discovered, even the judges, we have a judge here in Ohio that we call the hanging judge because you know you come through there as a black person for nothing you know a hundred dollars uh he sent this this a young man to 32 years for stealing a hundred dollars you know what i mean and these are these are narratives that happen on a regular basis and we had a conversation with him and it was important that as i went into that conversation that i left my personal bias at the door because i don't like this judge because of what he has done to people right but when i went in there i had to change the narrative and understand that he doesn't do 
any he's not doing or making the decisions that he's making in the courtroom um, out of malice as malicious as it may look to me, but in his mind, he's truly doing what's best for his community. So being able to look at each other with uh, a human eyes, human to human and understand why we are the way we are, why I think the way I think as a black woman and why you think the way you think as a white police officer, I do believe, or or just a police officer, because that's an entire culture right there. Um, but I do believe that, that those are the things that's going to um, actually start to change the future um, of this country and of our of our uh, community. So thank you again, uh, Mr. Robinson. And thank you, Jay, for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, again, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and um, um, I hope we can do this uh, again and again, <laughs> frankly, because uh, it's about, uh, as you say, education, you know, and getting it out there and exposure. So, um, uh, yeah, I said I had to run. <laughs> Yeah, so we're getting ready to leave. Uh, I want to thank you, Attorney Robinson. Happy birthday to you. Happy um, birthday. <laughs> enjoy your Happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. <laughs> right. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> yes. We were so supposed enjoy, to sing it. <laughs> yeah, enjoy your birthday. Thank you for joining us on Turning a Moment into a Movement. Hopefully you can come back um again and um to um sit with us and have these um, conversations i know we just skimmed across the surface i want everybody to get this book it's on amazon i see a here you see a hero i see a human being grab this book read it is um very important and um see you guys next week for turning a moment into a movement, Reviteer, get to your destination safe, and we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>